This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Today I wanted to talk about what is sometimes known as the problem of evil, which is normally a Judeo-Christian problem. Uh, I guess it's also a problem for any monotheistic faith that believes in an all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good uh, creator, God, who, who's invested. Right. Are you all familiar with this problem? Yes. <laughs> You're familiar with this problem? Yeah. I mean, as a problem, as like a theological issue in history, like how do you explain what's considered either uh, natural evil or moral evil? So natural evil is just things like tsunamis and earthquakes and the amount of pain and suffering caused by such events that are called acts of God sometimes, right? Um, and then that's, so that's considered like a natural evil and I'm using the word evil because that's the, the word that's used, even though it's, it feels weird in yeah. my mouth to say <laughs> the word evil. It feels weird, but I'm, I'm playing with this this morning. And then there's uh, what are considered to be acts of moral evil, which there are you know, many examples in our human history of what would be considered acts of moral evil, where great suffering is caused by humans. Right. And then the, the big conundrum becomes, how is it possible if God created the universe in his own image, right, and God is all good and created the universe out of nothing, and all-powerful and all-knowing, where does natural and moral evil even come from? Right? How does that even come up? Given that if everything is God and all God is all good and all-powerful and all-knowing and created this universe, how do you get evil? Some of you, I already, I know, have answers to this question. <laughs> Just growing up in our society, you will have heard lots of answers that have been given over the years by theologians to explain how it's possible. You may be asking at this point, what does this have to do with Buddhism? I'll, I'll get there. Because I think that in Buddhism, there's a similar problem, although it's done, it's, it's structured differently. But I think it came up in Norman Fisher's workshop, I think Maureen asked the question, <laughs> of whether this universe is good. Or when we talk about Buddha nature, or finding our original mind, or the original ground of our awareness, these are terms that, that we use to talk about some kind of fundamental goodness in the universe. Right? And even though we don't have, Buddhism does not have a god, a creator god. It does not have uh, an all-powerful, all-knowing, omnibenevolent creator that's orchestrating things, right? But it's interesting because this question, I think, is, it's a huge question for all of us, right? I, 
I think that my sister, my, my first experience with this question was growing up Catholic. And at some point, my older sister, she's five years older than me, I think I was maybe, she was probably 13, so eight or nine, around that age, she discovered, in history, she discovered the Crusades and the Inquisition. <laughs> And she brought up this question of, like, how is that possible? So for her, she was very, very uh, devout uh, Catholic up until that point, And then she sort of, some doubt crept in. And um, I assume that her relationships with the uh, priests in our Catholic parish uh, didn't answer her question well enough because she drifted away from the church. Maybe there are other reasons as well. But, but you know, I kind of grew up thinking about this question and being perplexed by it and then studying it uh, in a theological terms. Um, so I'm just curious, what answers do you think have been provided for this question? Well, yeah. I think for me it's just kind of dualism is the answer. It's like you can't have light without dark, and that's... Mm -hmm. It's a simple answer that I so give. So you need to have some amount of contrast to show yeah. good by having some yeah. amount of some amount of bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Eric? Um, can you speak asking about from the theological side? Yes. Um, the main, I think the main answer I've heard is like free will, that God doesn't want robots. Yes. He wants um, people with agency and uh, because of that allows humans to have take any action. Yes. But that, that brings me a question like why did you create uh, people like who are capable of such evil? Why didn't you make a better world where people don't do that and there's not all these Right, you can have a lot of choice without having those choices. <laughs> For example. Yeah. Yes, Joel? Um, I think it's um, theologians like John When we talk about the notion of God being, you know, omniscient, that there's really a, a very strong constraint there. Right? The idea is that God knows everything that does exist to be known, and the actions of free agents in the future cannot be known. So there's some like ontological knowability, you know, constraints. Okay. That yes. Yes. So you're kind of breaking down the problem itself and saying that the, there's not a, the problem is too simplistically stated. Mm -hmm. And that the word omniscience. Yeah, it's a, it's a linguistic trap, actually, is this sort of position. Okay. Thank you, John Hick. <laughs> <laughs> Ernest? I, I tend to think of it in evolutionary terms, basically something that didn't support our evolution from reptiles into conscious beings just didn't happen. So, so there's something, there's some evolutionary cause for having this whole concept of good and evil. And societies as they started forming they oh. had to answer these questions and there was an evolutionary advantage to, to coming up with these concepts during that period of time I don't know, maybe 200,000 years ago so I don't that's the way I think of it so that, is that kind of like a dissolution of the problem or is that a, an answer to the question is how do you maintain that there is a all knowing, all powerful and all good creator God, 
while also having these things. You can either try and come up with an answer like the like Anne's question, Anne's answer of dualistic, like having needing some kind of contrast to show the difference between good and evil, right? Or this idea of, well, free will explains why. Are you saying that evolutionarily speaking, we developed these concepts? Concepts. So we're evil. good and evil as concepts. Oh, that's right. And there was, okay. you know, in tribal societies, there was, okay, we're the good, and maybe they're not so good, and that helps us form a coherent. Okay, so, so we, we've got bigger brains that, that got us into trouble in some sense. That created the issue of the, dual, the duality between good and evil. Okay. Yes? Um, I've heard it described as basically a problem with forgetting, where you have a series of people who are still trying to do good in whatever way that they understand it, but they get it wrong because they've forgotten. Mm -hmm. So just sort of along the lines of free will, and free will combined with forgetting. Basically, like Basic what goodness. is good is not necessarily predefined, and so you're in the process of discovering what is good, and you make mistakes along the way. Okay. So just generally, we make mistakes. Tim. Along the lines of that, like some sense that um, the, the idea of like a spiritual life is a journey or a quest or a sort of development or evolution, and, and you actually need to overcome things to. Discover something new. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, in some ways, that, that could be considered like we're being tested. Yeah. We're being refined in the cauldron or the the crucible of human life, and we're being ref we have this opportunity to be refined and become to, and come to truly know what good is, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yes. I think this is sort of uh, along the same lines, but. So there's the first myth of the fall, where it, Original it sin. used to be that everything was good, right? Uh, and then there was sin, um, and then now, in the modern world, it's actually We're impossible the price. for humans to be good. Yeah. Uh, and the only way that goodness happens is an act of grace, a, a gift from God acting through you, or or to you, depending. Mm. Um, mm. And mm -hmm. So that, in fact, it's actually a question of how is there any good in the world because uh. humans have to discover how to be good and God is the source of good. Wow, this, this conversation could go on for a very long time. Just <laughs> 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 realizing that, like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. But yes, right? Original sin and then this, this question of how, if... if from original sin, do you all know the story of original sin? Anybody not know the story of original sin? So Eve ate the, she was tempted, there's temptation by the snake. Snake says, you know, look at this wonderful fruit. This is the tree of what? The tree is the knowledge of good and evil, right? So all, automatically, there it is. Like, without eating from that tree, there is no good and evil. There's at least no knowledge of it. Right. So Eve just had to, you know, listen to the snake, and here we are. <laughs> it's kind of the, you know, the, the rough sketch of that. <laughs> so we've, we've hit on a number of different, you know, there's some really good uh, answers to this question, right? Now, all these answers are problematic. Um, I think Hicks, uh, the work that Hick has done, John Hick has done on this problem is probably the like, most compelling in some ways as a modern approach, but... 
you know, we've been hearing from time, from, you know, the beginning of time, human, human time, in terms of our creation myths and stories, that there's these various answers that can explain it. Right, so like being tested, we're being tested. That we need good, in, we need evil in order to, to see good. You know, all these questions can have their their. You know, well, how much how much evil do we really need, right, <laughs> to see good? Do we really need that much evil? Can't we keep it in the zoo and not like let it out <laughs> or see it on PBS? <laughs> um, you know, this idea that this we haven't heard that this is the best of all possible worlds idea. Right, the free will, the original sin, like there's all these different reasons to try to come up with some uh, existential, I would say, understanding or awareness or settling with the problem of evil itself. Right? What does Buddhism do with this problem? Yes. We acknowledge that it exists and learn to deal with it. That's why it makes more sense than than having a god. So, so basically, there's no problem. There's a problem is that there it exists. It's what is. Yeah. And how do you respond as a human being? Just the, the same way you respond to all suffering. You know, figure out a way to deal with it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's a very practical, very practical approach to suffering, to the world of suffering is deal with it, like learn to see it, feel it, and then learn how to appropriately respond. Right. Very practical. Anyone else? Yes? Like early Buddhism was sort of like, the answer is to get out. It's to like leave it all behind. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> early Buddhism. So how do you do that? Nirvana, extinction, leaving mm -hmm. the will of samsara. Right. Get off the cycle of rebirth. Yeah, this world is this world. This human life is samsara, right? <laughs> it's a samsaric world, which means it's a world of suffering. Uh, let me ask, uh, get to Rich, and then Karen. Um, I've heard it talked about in terms of uh, transmigration. Like we are in the six realms. We are trans all beings are trans transmigrating through the six realms. What propels transmigration in the Buddhist cosmology? What determines your rebirth? Karma. Karma, yes. Karma. So that's a big way of just discussing what, you know, in the, in the system of belief and philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, cosmology, what is the, num this, this is the number one thing, the number one rule, one of the main rules in Buddhism is the law of karma, right? As an example for why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's the, I mean, I think that oftentimes the problem of evil comes up as, well, if bad things happen to somebody because they deserved it, right? And that's just called justice, right? But Buddhism isn't really associated, it doesn't, I would say Buddhism isn't uh, um, so interested in the idea of justice. Karma oftentimes gets equated with the idea of justice, but actually Buddhism and what the Buddha said about karma is not really about justice. But we'll get back to that. Let me, uh, do you care? So in Buddhism, uh, just the way you were talking, I was thinking earlier, are suffering, the words suffering and evil seem 
very connected, almost like we're almost using them interchangeably. Is that? I am kind of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have an objection? <laughs> so, I mean, like, you're trying to flesh it out. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I think that, yeah, I think, I mean, yes. sort of, as, I, as you were talking about the earlier part, I kept thinking, well, it, it is sort of su suffering. It, it, it is sort of similar. And, yeah. And the interesting thing is that in Buddhism, knowledge of our ignorance, I mean, of the way the world really is, is actually what alleviates suffering. It's almost like the opposite of the of the fall. But now that I think about it, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. But it's a particular kind of knowledge. It's a particular kind of knowledge. Not necessarily knowledge of dual dual duality. No, but of how the world is. Of yes. An understanding of reality. Right, which is interesting because it's not necessarily a discursive knowledge, right. right? Whereas I think in the creation, the story of uh, the fall, right, okay. it's a it's okay. more of a discursive, like knowledge of, of the of good and evil is not knowledge in a existential way. It's knowledge in a discursive way. I think, Rob. So I think that. Uh, from the Buddhist perspective, evil is delusion that we're separate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So basic ignorance, like Karen was saying, the basic fundamental of ignorance in Buddhism is this idea that we are separate, that I'm an individual uh, really, truly, that I'm completely separate from all other beings and I can be separate, separable which we can do in thought, right? And discursively, we can actually, conventionally speaking, right, the bills come to me, not to you, right? <laughs> I have to live my own life, and you can't live my life for me, right? So I am an individual, conventionally speaking, that's very true. But the, the problem of ignorance is that we think that that's actually real, that it's ultimately real, that I am ultimately a thing, that is separate from all other things. When in truth, what? I'm actually completely made up of non-me parts, <laughs> actually. I'm made up of the entire universe, as are you. Right? And that only conventionally, when we conventionally talk about, we have to conventionally designate, because otherwise we, you know, there would be no uh, way of talking about anything, actually. We wouldn't be able to name anything Right? Unless we were speaking conventionally. But ultimately, the truth of the matter in Buddhism is that everything is empty of its own existence. There's nothing that is separable. Everything is right here. Everything is connected. Not just connected, because connected means like they're separate things. Right? So yeah, this is a huge, uh, you know, way of unraveling this question, in a sense, right? And yet, <laughs> and yet, how do we face suffering? Is it just, oh, I just have the wrong idea, I need to change my idea? Is it that simple? Is that really an appropriate response to the suffering of the world? 
Right? There's a lot, there's a, this is a cracking open, right? In Zen, as you all probably know, maybe you are new to Zen and don't know this yet, but whatever you think <laughs> is wrong. <laughs> there's another way of thinking about it, but that's also wrong. <laughs> there's no one way to think about it that's, that's going to be correct, because just using the apparatus of our thinking mind, we're already putting it into this very limited terms of our own conventional understanding, which is never enough, it's never going to be enough to grasp the totality of the universe, of our universal, uh, you can call it universal mind, you can call it Buddha nature, you can call it uh, things as they are, things as it is, the Suzuki Roshi like to talk about it, things as it is, just <laughs> all of it. <laughs> Uh, in a recent precept group, we had somebody say, this, <laughs> just this. <laughs> yes, Jacob? I was just going to say, you briefly mentioned, you know, things are not necessarily good or bad in the sense that you might think, in a literal sense, that, you know, what do you, where does it come in that you would interact with the world or do anything? You mentioned that briefly a few seconds, a few minutes ago. <laughs> um, I guess I was just thinking what sprung in my mind was uh, compassion. So you're not taking an action because you think something is wrong. You're taking an action because you you have a true sense of yes. from the interconnectedness comes a compassion, and yes. you can act on that. Yes, right. There is that compassion. Does anybody here not believe in the power of compassion, or doesn't know what that means? I don't know what that means. You don't know what the power of compassion is. Have anyone not not have a felt experience of, of feeling compassion? Not empathy, but the feeling of compassion, which I would say is a it's a heart feeling. It's like a heart melty feeling, where in the face of suffering, whether it's your own or another person's or a, a, an animal, sometimes it's easiest to picture this. If you imagine, just imagine that you have a you know, think of the easiest example of all, like a small kitten, or maybe you don't like cats, maybe a small dog or something like that, a puppy that hurt its foot, it stepped on a, you know, a, a thorn, and it's, you know, whining. And it's, you know, favoring its, its other good paw, right? The feeling of wishing this creature or this being uh, an end to its suffering, right? That its suffering be alleviated. And it's an impulse. It's an impulse to either console or to reach out or, or to just even send a, a wish of good intention. May you be well. Right? We just chanted, for those of you who are here for a service, every Saturday we chant the loving kindness meditation, which is a, uh, it's an extension of loving kindness, which is different from compassion. It can be, loving kindness can be extended whether anyone's suffering at all. We, we don't need suffering. Whereas compassion is kind of based on a as a response to a suffering, right? So thank you for bringing that up, Jacob, about the the feeling of of compassion as being a natural response to any sort of suffering. If we say that's a total response, point to yeah. something Yes, this is the niche. This is the question. It's kind of what I'm trying to get into is. This question that actually that Maureen brought up, this question about, and I don't think Norman really answered it. Uh, is the universe ultimately good? I think the Buddha 
himself, when asked this question in different terms, what did he say? Anyone know what he said? <laughs> he doesn't say anything. He actually remains silent. Right? So, did you just say bummer? He probably just doesn't want to depress everyone. Maybe. Usually, usually he remains silent with something he thought wasn't within the purview. Yes. Yeah. Oftentimes, uh, the Buddhas remain silent either as a scent. Right, yeah. or um, because it's it's not something that it's not what he's interested in, right? He's interested in what Indeed. suffering, the causes of suffering, the path to you know, alleviating suffering or the cessation of suffering, and the path to get to the end to get to the end of it, the bottom of it, right? That's what he's interested in. That was what he was originally. That's his what he said he wanted to teach, and what he did, in fact, teach. So I want to. Don't have very much time, but I want to go into this question from a perspective of this is a Zen story about our 20th ancestor from the Buddha on. The name whose name is the Venerable Shayata. Pat. Yes, Pat and I just read this uh, this past week together. So the question is, once the 19th ancestor said, although you already have faith in the karma of the three times, which I'll maybe get to, still you have not yet clarified the fact that karma is produced from delusion. Delusion exists as a result of consciousness. Consciousness results from ignorance, and ignorance results from mind. Mind is originally pure, without origination and cessation, without doing or effort, without karmic retribution, without superiority or inferiority, very still and very intelligent. If you accept this teaching, you will become the same as all the Buddhas. All good and evil, conditioned and unconditioned, are like dreams and fantasies. Hearing these words, Shayata grasped the deeper meaning of these words and aroused the wisdom that he had possessed since time immemorial. So this comes from this question. So the, the, the thing that Shaita said just before his teachers responded this way, he said, <clears throat> for a long time, this is what he's thinking, he's, he thought, for a long time I have taken refuge in the Buddha Dharma. Relying on the power of the Dharma, I should be in good health. And matters ought to work out satisfactorily. But they don't work out well at all. And my health is not good. What is my offense? The outcast family has always engaged in evil conduct, and they do not cultivate good roots. But they have luck in whatever they do, and they are in good health. What is their blessing? So, this right here is the problem of evil, right? Why is it that if I'm doing all the right things that I'm still suffering, whereas those people over there who are not really following the precepts at all, and they're doing whatever they want, or they're doing cruel things maybe, how can they be, how can they be so successful? Right? Dogen has a fascicle called the karma of the three times. And this is specific, this, this answer of the karma in the three times is a uh, is one 
one answer to this question, which is that sometimes their karma is experienced immediately, maybe even instantly. Right? This is very fortunate when we have karma that appears that happens uh, instantly. That's the karma in the present. Then there's the karma of the of a future time, which is uh, often cast as the karma that is uh, that comes to fruition in the next life. Right, something that you do in this life, and then in the next life, you experience the effects, the fruits of that karma. And then there's the third time, which is in future lives. Right. Now Bodhidharma, in his outline of practice, also talks about this question. And, and one of the main ways that Bodhidharma talks about what, as an admonition for practitioners, is to endure suffering. That's one of the ways of entering practice, is to endure suffering. Right? Something that we all actually do. We all, we all do it. We all have to. We're human beings. Right? But he brings it into this way of, like, this is as a practice, how do you endure your own suffering in a way that doesn't lead to further suffering? Right? Very tricky to be able to do that. There's no easy answer. There's no like, oh, this suffering actually that you're experiencing doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to somebody else. Let me just take it away. Like, Buddhism doesn't do that right? in any way. Down. So when talking about this karma of the three times, uh, it's not very satisfying. Right? And actually it leads to some pretty big problems in the history of Buddhism, like the caste system being justified, for example. Oh, you're suffering? Well, it must be because you did something bad. You deserve it. Right? That has been used throughout history very, I would say very meanly, <laughs> even though I don't think it's intended to be mean. It's very matter of fact. It's like, oh, you know, if you're, in, if you're having a misfortune, then it's because of something that you did, right? surely. It actually goes against the Buddha's uh, uh, loving kindness meditation. Okay. Yes, Yaka? Maybe even go higher. So they're actually being helped by. Um, so 
they're being presented with an opportunity to shake off some bad karma because they're they're on the way out. So in fact, it's kind of like two arrows. One is going down, and the, the criterion is that um, it's it's actually the awareness. So if the person is doing well materially, but they're aware and suppose you know they're maybe they're in the Zen center or doing some other meditation, that's probably a sign that that's just they're they're good deed and they're just that's their good karma. If the person is completely clueless and they're seemingly doing mm. well, yes. that does not bode well. That's, right. That's, Yes, yes, exactly. Thank you. So this is another way of looking at the karma of the three times, and, and in it, Kazan says, so, yes, so he says, the um, evil causes in past eons ought to be experienced in the future as severe suffering, but sometimes they are experienced lightly. Why? Because of the power of practicing the dharma. One might be ill, things may not work out well, and people may make fun of what you say. <laughs> These are all examples of receiving lightly in the present what would be severe suffering in the future. Thus the power of practicing Buddha Dharma should be relied upon more and more. So this awareness, so in terms of practice, what is practicing the Buddha Dharma? We'll get to that in a second. Results of bad karma in the distant past can all be made light only if you are courageous and energetic. Even though, as students, you understand the way very well, you may have a bad reputation. You may fail in your efforts, or your health may be bad. If you realize that these are examples of, gra of grave results changing and being experienced lightly, you will not bear a grudge against malicious people. Even though people slander and injure, do not blame them. Even though these slanderers are venerated and respected, do not hate them. The karma of practicing the way grows daily, and the bad karma of former lives decreases. But you should practice carefully and thoroughly. So even if you, but then he says, even if you already understand this very well, like you accept the karma of the three times, still, you have to go further and understand the root, the root of karma. This karma, that karma is born from delusion. Bad experiences are born from delusion. But again, this isn't necessarily uh, a satisfactory thing to say to somebody who is suffering, right? You can't just say, oh, well, it's because you're deluded. <laughs> that's, you're just deluded. That's why you're suffering. But that's what you know. It's it feels like suffering, but really it's not. Now, you can't you can't really say that, or you can, but that doesn't really uh, that's not really helpful. So, backing up a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about something that uh, I heard from Gil Franzdal. So, there's a word that the Buddha used, a compound word called sati. Do you all know what sati means? Sati, mindfulness. Sampajana. Anyone know what sampajana means? Use the two together. Sati, sampajana, as one concept. But the sati means mindfulness. The sampajana means it's a form of wisdom or clear seeing. It's a clear comprehension or understanding. Mindfulness, right? is what? What is a good description of just basic mindfulness? 
Presence. Presence, awareness, right? Being aware of what's happening in the moment as it's happening. Because it's not awareness of something in the future or awareness of something in the past. It's awareness right now. Presence, right? But John, I meant recalling your intention to be mindful or something in practical terms. Yes, 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 exactly. We are getting to that. So the sati part just is the mindfulness or the presence, awareness, which is something that can be cultivated, right? You all know that we, we cultivate this. It's not necessarily something that just comes out of the box. I mean, it does actually just come out of the box, but we then like put stuff on it and get distracted, right? We get distracted and we have to remind ourselves, oh, I'm this, this, this is happening, right? Because if we're like on autopilot or we're thinking about yesterday or we're what, you know, planning what's going to happen next week, we're not able to be mindful, right? It, it's about being right here, right now. Seeing the way things are or when Suzuki Roshi talks about things as it is, this, like what is this, is a mindfulness, is a way of being mindful of what's happening. And sometimes we may be suffering in that moment, and what do we do with that? What do we do with our own suffering? Or maybe we're actually not suffering in the, we're not feeling pain, but we're elated about something. Maybe we're like joyful. What do we do with that in this mindfulness? This moment of mindfulness, what do we do? Accept it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Did you say accept it? I said pay attention. Pay attention, accept it. And then what? Let it go. Let it go, right? Because why? Because everything changes. Because the next moment comes along, and actually what you felt or experienced the moment before is over. It might be arising again in this moment, but you let it go. You let go of the past thing, and you allow the, the thing that's now happening in your mind, in your mental awareness or your physical awareness, right? You let that be, and you accept it, pay attention, and let it go, right? And you keep doing this. This is mindfulness practice. Now, Tracy, <laughs> Sampajana. Say again what Sampajana what you were saying, what you meant by sampajana? I, I thought it was that, uh, there's this compound, right? Sati sampajanya. Sap, sampajanya being recalling your intention to be mindful, which I heard someone say is remembering. Well, anyway. Not forgetting. Not forgetting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, bringing that in. It's necessary, right? Otherwise, we, we can forget. Because you will forget. You will forget. Yes. And actually, being mindful, so the, the story that Gil talks about, she talks about the being at Tassajara in the monastery where everything is set up so all you have to do is just be present. You don't have to worry about who's going to do the cooking. You don't have to do, worry about who's going to clean this or that because it's all in the part of the, the, the forms and the schedule and the life, the daily life of living in, living, uh, in a monastery. In Zen practice, forms are incredibly important, right? How you sit, how you stand, which foot you enter, the door into the zendo with. Things like this are very important, not because they mean anything. They actually mean nothing, right? Why are they important? 
is it brings you back to the present moment. It's entirely for the, the tool, the, the purpose of bringing up your intention, right? And being able to see that process. This is the Sampajana. Jnana. <laughs> right? This is the awareness that allows us the with the understanding that actually what happens, you know, just pure mindfulness by itself is just like let, let arise, letting things arise, letting them pass away, and letting them go, and just being present to the rising and, and cessation. Right? It doesn't actually tell us what to do with it. It doesn't actually necessarily connect us with what our intention is. Right? which is actually the main point of karma. Karma literally means action. But in terms of the history of thought, karma, there's so many different ways of talking about karma. The Buddha talked about karma as intention, purely as intention, or intention action. Right? And Sampajnana, jana, janya, <laughs> Sampajanya is this understanding of how to respond to what comes up when you're mindful. And the story that Gil tells is, oh, it's all so easy when you're in the monastery and everything is taken care of. But once you leave the monastery, you can't just rely on your mindfulness alone. He says, having kids actually really taught him. <laughs> it's like, oh, my child has an earache. You know, what do I do? But that, it's like, it's not enough to just be mindful. Clearly seeing, my child has an earache. You know? <laughs> no, how do, you, how do you do with that? <laughs> so you, learning how to respond to the way things are, or learning how to come back to touching your own intention, to make contact with your intention, because that will spur on the next moment of what you do with it. What you clearly see when you're being present and mindful, how do you then respond? How do you act? Right? This is a necessary part to actually, this question, how do you act, brings up this, what, already, what Eric brought up earlier, this idea of free will, which is problematic in and of itself. <laughs> that being free, right, will, but will, right, having a choice. So another example that, that Gil gave that I found really helpful was looking at the way, like, how we sit, the practice of sitting. When we come into the zendo, or when you're sitting at home in your chair watching television or reading a book, or you're sitting at the office, or you're sitting at a desk, or wherever it is that you're sitting, how are you sitting? Right? Do you sit with intention, or are you sitting with habit energy? Huge difference if you can turn towards this question of, well, how am I sitting, and how would I like to be sitting? That totally changes your whole musculoskeletal system, which then changes your digestion and your, the way you breathe, and all it changes your entire life, right? Suddenly, you can bring in this uh, awareness of your own intention, which is necessary, right? This is, this is where karma comes up. So rather than using karma to explain why good things happen to bad people or why bad things happen to good people, right? How does this basic understanding of karma as intention, right? If karma is an, a way of unpacking this question, right? Where did, how does this come up in our practice? 
So, anyone? Yes, Rich. So, we were having a discussion about this in the conversation group where we were talking about 9 uh, 11 in particular. And um, I was thinking we were talking about it in terms of there's this evil that happened, right? And so, and we can see it, see this killing, this massive killing as, a, as an evil act. But we can also see the people who did it as having suffering of their own that led them to that and say, I see that they did this. I see that, but I can also see that they were suffering. They had this particular mindset or experience that made them want to do this. And even and they hurt me deeply, and and yet uh, because of this evil act. But yet I can look at my own experience and, and feel that that feeling of hurt that was caused by that evil, and then ask myself, what is my intention to these people? Is it is do I want to in, do the same back to them? Do I want to return the the action back at them? Right. Is that my intention, or right. Right. do I have another intention? Right. You, but you have to stop yourself. Before you just react, you know yeah. that's the the mindfulness component. Right. There's this term that I, I see you playing around with. It's like the question of like, what is reaction, reactivity, or react, you know, reacting to something, versus responding, right? The reaction versus response divide, right? Where the idea is reactivity is something that is maybe habitual and un uh, unintended. It's non. It's not a careful, carefully considered, right? As opposed to responding, which has some level of mindful awareness and some level of reflection on one's intention, right? You Included. See that, you see that, that ideally person, that that person is suffering, and I'm suffering, and that we're sharing the same life, but we're going through different stages of or different experiences. They're going through some sort of hell experience, maybe right now, and inflicting that on other people, and that I mean that that happens in everyday life, for me, like just ordinary things that are not necessarily evil, but just sort of difficult, challenging. Yeah, yeah. That are, you can see people going through something, and when you find out what they're going through, you go, oh, okay, they were going through that. They were having that experience, and that was what made them do that. Now, now I can from a that. Zen perspective, I, f I feel like that's all very, Dharma discussion, it's, it's well within the realm of Dharma discussion and trying to unpack and reflect on one's actions. Yeah. Right? But let me just, and I want to end because we're all we're pretty out of time, but I want to end with just giving you a Zen koan to think about this, how this koan affects this question. So the, the, uh, the koan, many of you have heard before, it's the koan of Joshu or Zhaoshu washing his bowls. So the case is, a monk asked Joshu, I've just entered this monastery. Please give me some guidance. Right? You're a new student. You show up. I want to know what to do next. You just did the next steps class, or you just did the first introduction to meditation, or whatever it is. What's next? Joshu says, well, have you had breakfast yet? And the monk answers, yes, I've eaten. And Joshu's response is, well, then go wash your bowls. How does this koan address what is what this what we're bringing up in this in this uh, today's talk? Right. Well, go wash your bowls. 
What is the appropriate action? Does it involve thinking? Does it involve reflection? Does it involve awareness? Does it involve awareness of intention? Does it involve discursive thought? What do we as human beings, what can we rely on, if anything, in, our, uh, in guiding our actions? What somebody said. What does Joshu mean by go wash your bowls? Anyway, I apologize that I've dumped this gigantic, thorny, <laughs> messy question on all of you this morning. I hope that you enjoy it, savor it while, you, <laughs> while it's here. And, um, and actually, what I think I'm going to do is, uh, after tea and cookies, maybe 15 minutes after tea and cookies, I'm going to come back into the Zendo and we can just have an informal you know, continuation of this, you know, just an informal Q&A uh, discussion if anyone would like to. And it won't, you know, and you can feel free to come or not come. Sound good? All right. I'm off the hook for now. <laughs> Thank you very much.